0: You know, as a compliance professional myself, someone who's helping companies evaluate risk is to try to see where are the risks coming down the road. And certainly the shift into cleaner renewables will be part of that. ESG has exploded into compliance and business consciousness in 2021. Join Tom Fox, the voice of compliance on the ESG report, and learn about sustainability risks, opportunities, and issues that business leaders and compliance professionals need to know about regarding ESG.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And I have back Brian Silliman. Brian's the head of the Paris office for Hughes Hubbard. And he had contacted me a while back about some two really interesting papers he's written. So with that, Brian, First of all, thank you for taking the time to visit with me and welcome
0: back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And yeah, I would not have predicted the circumstances in Houston, but hopefully things improve from here.
1: So the first paper you wrote was Five Steps to Establishing a Corporate ESG Policy for the Present Moment. You co-authored this with your colleague, Alexandra Poe. And I wanted to start off with why did you write this paper?
0: So Sandra, Alexandra, Sandra Poe is a corporate partner of mine in New York. She's been interested in and working on sustainable investing and ESG issues before they were all nicely sort of packaged in this ESG package. And both of us, I think, were struck by how increasingly prevalent and important ESG has become, especially in the last year or two. I think there's a couple of potential reasons for that. One is the, the famous Larry Fink message to corporate leaders from BlackRock about climate risk being investment risk. The other is the statement on the business roundtable on stakeholder capitalism. And we thought, you know, with all of this attention on ESG, that it would be interesting to try to come up with some practical guidance and guidelines for companies to try to address it.
1: Brian, one of the reasons I found it so prescient, obviously, with a change in administration in the United States, ESG is now more in favor with the regulators. But I think more importantly is the public, whether that be the shareholder investing public or the customer public or even the employee public is demanding more of sustainability. And what I found in your paper was a framework for companies to think through how they respond to all of those stakeholders and perhaps even more. So I was wondering if you could maybe just walk us through some of the steps you guys suggest.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we tried to break it down into what would hopefully be sort of manageable pieces because it is an enormous exercise, or at least it can be. And I think we recognize it's a process that companies will have to go through. But the first, I guess, at a a basic level is to consider what may be right for the company at this point in time. Some corporates have advanced on these issues already a good bit. Some are just getting started. And it's important, I think, to take a look at the landscape that's out there. There's a number of voluntary standards, TCFD, SASB, GRI being three of perhaps the most prevalent, and seeing what may make the most sense for your organization at the time. The second and third ones are interrelated in that on one hand, it's important to take a look at what might already be required in terms of your reporting and disclosure obligations. There's some countries based in France. France has had mandatory reporting for certain large corporations on non-financial issues for a number of years. So to the extent that your company, your organization's already disclosing on certain of these issues, that could play nicely into your approach. And relatedly, I think it's important to take a look at your specific industry, your specific geographic footprint, and what might make the most sense for you to evaluate in each of the E, S, and the G buckets. So things like greenhouse gas emissions, environmental waste in the E, in the S bucket, things like employee safety, HR policies, hiring policies, gender and discrimination policies, things that all are getting a good bit of attention and rightfully so these days. And then in the G category, both how you are complying with regulatory issues, but also board makeup and governance issues more broadly. And looking at what your peers may be doing in certain of your industries can be a useful starting point in that respect. We also thought that it was important to point out that companies may have already tools and mechanisms and frameworks that they can pull from to help in this area. And the corporate Anti corruption compliance program is one that we saw parallels to where there may already be assessments of third party risk. There may be information that's being gathered from procurement or from other departments or from HSE that you can take and put together into part of your ESG analysis. And then, as a last point, to recognize that this is a process and that it's important as part of the implementation to recognize that you'll need to test and to modify and perhaps enhance things going forward.
1: I really like your first point around do what's not right for your company, but really start with what you can do and look at what you have. And in the anti-corruption world, we call that a risk assessment. But I think many companies and most specifically compliance practitioners may not know what their company has in terms of ESG. So the example of, well, we've moved to paperless, Something as simple as that could be a part of it. So do you advocate really a, a company not assessing their risk, but assessing what they have to see
0: what they are already doing in the ESG space and maybe build from that as well? Absolutely. And I think that this is an area that benefits from information from a number of different departments. And so you may see, and we've seen companies that are forming ESG committees, whether that's at the board level or at the management level or both And taking information from different areas that they may not, as you point out, necessarily think at first blush would feed into an ESG policy or program, but can really be quite substantial. And so, looking at HSE information, for example, or taking information from procurement and purchasing, as well as the more traditional sort of compliance pieces, I think all play into this approach. And we thought that. You know, those organizations that have experience developing a robust anti-corruption compliance program, for example, will see some parallels in this respect. You know, there's elements of that process that I think translate very well into the ESG space. Things like setting a good tone at the top, developing a framework, developing policies and procedures, implementing those through training, through communication, through outreach, and then having a, a process of testing, testing, revising, and continuously improving.
1: Ryan, I recently had the opportunity to interview Kim Yapchai. Kim is the Chief Compliance Officer at Teneco, a major chemicals firm in the United States. And last year, she was given the additional title of Head of Sustainability. And that was, for me, a major move, companies recognizing that many of these concepts, as you have just articulated, fit within the compliance space. But I really wanted to use that as perhaps an introduction to why do you think that every compliance practitioner needs to be aware and cognizant of these and how a compliance
0: practitioner can help drive this discussion forward? I think there's two main points there. One is the point that I made previously, which is that compliance officers have a lot of these skills built into their roles and their responsibilities. And I think that they, you know, compliance is at its very essence sort of a risk management and also a a change management process. And so anytime you're implementing a large program like that, that's intended to change the way people are thinking about how they go about their business and their activities, it requires a full-time commitment. It requires a certain skill set. And I think those skills are very transferable between the what we may sort of traditionally have viewed as compliance officer role and this broader ESG type of function. I think also You will see a move from this being a more voluntary initiative to a more mandatory one. And we've seen that here in the EU already with the adoption of the EU taxonomy, which comes into play this year for certain financial market participants and next year for large corporates and requires a very detailed disclosure for those companies that are claiming to be involved in climate mitigation or climate adaptation activities. And the effort. The idea behind that was to try to avoid the phenomena of greenwashing, where people will say they're involved in a sustainable activity, but not really put the metrics and the testing behind it. And I think you'll see that come to the United States. There's already been talk of the SEC weighing in more on this issue. The SEC has appointed for the first time ever someone dedicated to assessing ESG issues there. And I would expect that it's a matter of time before there's some form of more mandatory disclosure. And I think that naturally plays into the legal and compliance role as well.
1: I don't think people often think of the legal world as a marketplace, but I would say in the marketplace of plaintiff shareholder lawsuits, we have already seen many of those where the claim is basically that, hey, your company is not living up to what it says it lives up to. And the thing I really like yeah. about your remarks there and indeed your entire framework is it gives you a way as a corporation to answer those types of claims without that doesn't even get to the regulatory part. And when the SEC comes out or, or other regulatory body in the United States, you'll be able to, to show that you have a framework, you're moving
0: forward and you're documenting every step. Exactly. I think that'll be increasingly important. And hopefully there'll be some additional coherence and consistency because that is one of the criticisms of the ESG space is that there's so many different reporting mechanisms out there, it's difficult to sometimes know which one to report under and maybe get uh, coherence among them. So hopefully we see some greater consolidation there.
1: Ryan, when you contacted me about this paper, you also referenced another paper you'd written called Keeping the Clean and Clean Energy. So... As much as I wanted to visit with you about ESG, I really wanted to visit with you about this paper as well, because one of the things we saw was not simply a failure of cleaner green energy, like I said, a failure of all uh, power (laughs) producers. And it's one of the things that struck me was the need to have a mix of different power producers solar, wind, nuclear, coal, natural gas. I was wondering really how those thoughts you had around. Simply the clean and clean energy, how it relates to ESG, really help us focus on having a mix of resources so that if one goes down, others can still step up, yet staying within the whole ESG umbrella.
0: Yeah, well, I think the two topics are certainly interrelated, right? And I think as we see more and more corporates making carbon neutral or even sometimes carbon negative pledges and more and more clean and renewable. Purchasing that will put an increase in demand. Obviously, there has been a huge increase in demand and supply for clean and renewable energy, whether that's through power purchase agreements from corporates or the government itself, or governments really around the world that are driving these changes through different policy mechanisms. And ultimately, what I think drove me and my colleague in Washington to do the paper was that this is really going to already is and will continue to result in quite a geopolitical shift. And with that will come certainly additional opportunities. And we see that a lot through innovation, whether it's electric vehicles, or clean hydrogen, or any of the sort of clean and renewable technologies that are coming out. But it will also present risks. And I think that's what ultimately interested us in Doing this is, you know, as a compliance professional myself, someone who's helping companies evaluate risk is to try to see where are the risks coming down the road. And certainly the shift into clean and renewables will be part of that.
1: I first became aware about sort of clean and renewables. I was in-house counsel with Halliburton in the first decade of this year, and I went to a couple of events where they were talking about wind, they were talking about solar, and two things struck me. Uh, The first one was, look, this is no silver bullet. It is a tool. We can use this tool or choose not to use this tool. But the second thing was, and this is back when wind was 0.01% of the market. And of course, it's increased in many states since that time. But it struck me that if we could get a mix of these renewables, we could extend out the life of fossil fuels and actually would be a market positive because we would have energy for X number of years into the future. Are those discussions ongoing in Europe now? Are you a part
0: of any of those sort of business-related discussions as well? I think it's fair to say that they are. The EU, as in the, I would say, the ESG space, the EU seems to be a bit ahead where the U.S. is on its commitment to, or at least its funding of clean and renewables. So with the EU Green Deal, they've devoted, I believe, a trillion euros or so to clean and renewable energies in different types, a lot going to hydrogen, but also to wind, to solar, to electric vehicle infrastructure. And we see it with clients as well. We see it with clients, some of which are more traditional energy companies, which are not saying that we're going to give up on our traditional energy activities, but are increasingly investing in the clean and renewable space in order to diversify and to position themselves for what I think they see both as a necessary sort of evolution and change and also the realities of the market here in the EU going forward.
1: Brian, when you and your colleagues get a call from a corporation or perhaps even go visit with corporations around the ESG issues, who are you talking to? Are you talking to the general counsel or are you are talking to a chief compliance officer? Or are you talking to the head
0: of sustainability or, or someone else within the company? Our points of contact vary depending on the company and how they're organized internally. Traditionally, a lot of the uh, discussions are with the the general counsels, with the chief compliance officers. But I think as we see for our prior points, as we see these areas sort of coming together, it's increasingly likely that you'll have sustainability, human resources, and in a lot of cases, maybe a committee of the board or parts of the board devoted to it as well.
1: And that's a great point I wanted to specifically focus on is our boards finally waking up to seeing this is an opportunity, this is a risk, this is a, a
0: business process and decision that they need to at least have some oversight on? I think so. I think so. I think it's driven both by the competitive nature of the market. I think we see, we see that in the energy industry where certain companies are positioning themselves as moving quicker towards the clean and renewable area. And so whether it's driven by their competitors and feeling a need to do that, also driven by investors. You know, I mentioned BlackRock at the outset it's the world's largest asset manager, but it's certainly not the only one that is pushing for these types of discussions to be held at the board level and really engaging with the board and in some cases even voting against members of the board of directors that they feel are not sufficiently well versed in these ESG or climate related areas. And on the investment front, we also see both the sort of asset managers, but also sovereign wealth funds that are increasingly involved in the discussions.
1: Brian, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our our listeners wanted any more information, where could they go?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we have links to the, the articles that you mentioned on the Hughes Hubbard website, I also have uh, linked them through my LinkedIn account. If anyone wants to connect on LinkedIn, happy to do that. And I'll put a plug out for our upcoming anti-corruption alert, which is a free resource that Hugh Hubbard puts out about once a year, which will be coming out fairly soon. And hopefully there'll be some colleagues on to speak with you about it as well, Tom.
1: Brian, I hope that I could perhaps call upon you uh, down the road where you can uh, help companies understand what their obligations may be and to satisfy those. Not only from the legal realm, but also from the business side as well. Pleasure.
0: Absolutely.